Welcome to episode 848 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our Patreon supporters and the Baseball Reference Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Hey, pal. We are talking about the Tampa Bay Rays today. Later on in this segment, George Bissell will talk to Mark Topkin, who covers the Rays for the Tampa Bay Times. We are talking not to the author of the BP Annual Essay, who was Chris Mosh, who now works for the Angels, but the author of the Rays' comments in the BP Annual, as well as a writer for ESPN Insider and and a longtime writer about the Rays in various outlets, Tommy Rancel. Hey, Tommy. Hey, guys. So when I first looked at the Pakoda projections this year, and they've changed a bit since then, but I think the raise was the most surprising result to me at the time. It was somewhat surprising to see the Royals with something in the 70s, but not really because you kind of knew Pakoda was going to do that. But to see the Rays in the 90s as they were at the time was more surprising to me. I think Pakoda is still the high system or the high projector on the Rays. So We will ask you for your prediction at the end of this segment, so you don't have to spoil it now. But what is the argument, at least, for the Rays as maybe the best team in this division or as strong as any other team in this division? Well, if they're going to come close to the projections, it's going to start with the starting pitching, and that's been the case the whole time. And anytime you can look at the staff that they throw together, led by Chris Archer, and they're going to have uh, a full year of Matt Moore and, and another year removed from surgery, so you think he'd come back stronger. Jake Odorizzi, uh, you know, in there. Drew Smiley, who uh, opted not to have surgery last year, but has looked really good this spring. And, you know, he's another guy who missed a ton of time. So, you know, it's going to be a different day. They won 80 games last year, and they had to, you know, do a lot of it on the fly uh, with the Rasmo Ramirez and Nate Carnes and, and just kind of mixing and matching here. So uh, if, if they get those four guys up front, and then you're going to have, you know, Ramirez in that fifth spot, but you're looking down the road at, you know, Alex Cobb coming back, potentially, you know, mid to late summer, and then there's always Blake Snell, who is one of the top prospects in baseball, who after, you know, the, the – clock stall and, and we're not worried about arbitration and service time uh if they if they have a need and they have an opening he's the guy who you can put in there too so if they're going to come close to the projections as always it's going to start with that starting pitching and what are you hoping for from Moore? you know i think i think he may have rushed back a little bit i think the situation at the major league level uh may have pushed that a little bit you know they, they were really you know desperate for, for quality starting pitching and uh I think obviously when you're coming back from an injury like that, things like control and command, typically the last things to come. So uh, I think now he, he looks strong at the end of the season. They actually sent him back down to the minors after he came up, and you know, he came back looked strong, got the command and control a little bit back there. And this season, uh, this spring, you know, he's bringing some back some of the velocity. He's not the not the guy that we saw, you know, in, in that that game in Texas uh, a couple of years ago in the playoffs, but. Uh, you know, working 92 to 95 is, is funny, especially if he knows where the ball's going. He, I, we, I think we talked to Sobzi about him uh, when he got recalled for the third time last year because he had just come off this insanely dominant AAA start and had pitched extremely well for AAA at AAA for five starts and 
seemed like maybe he was back and then he he was sort of um like inconclusive in his uh final major league stint he had six starts uh, he had a sub three era he had three strikeouts per walk in his final four starts he was uh, especially good and he had one really dominant outing and yeah he seems like the if you were gonna take a spring story and make too much of it this year like there's always one or two or ten or 75 of those but more might be the first guy that jumps out at me i mean you know he's got what i think 12 strikeouts and no walks to date in like 10 or 11 innings and he's saying really excited things or moderately excited things about where he is it sort of does seem like you could imagine uh you know a five or six win margin between his upside and his downside this year which is like the difference between the playoffs and not the playoffs like that is how the Rays, like the Rays, very well and pakota very well might be judged this year based on, uh, entirely on whether Matt Moore is at the high end or the low end of that. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and Erasmo Ramirez is someone that doesn't usually get mentioned, maybe in the same breath as, as some of the other guys who have better pedigrees in that rotation, but he was pretty impressive, especially after some early shakiness. So what did you see from him that led to that improvement? Yeah, the, the race put him in a tough spot. And, and like I said, they, they had to with, with some of these guys because just what they were working with, they lost, uh, you know, basically three guys before before games even started last year. So Ramirez kind of bounced back. Is, is he going to be in the bullpen? Is he going to be in the rotation? And then once they finally, you know, they were pretty much forced to give him a, a spot every fifth day. I think he got a little bit more comfortable and, uh, you know, the Rays were, were smart and diligent in how they used them. He was one of the guys that's been, you know, written about that, you know, didn't really face the third time of, of the, uh, didn't face a, a lineup for the third time a lot of the times. And, uh, you know, even if he was at 60, 70 pitches after five innings or six innings, once that lineup flipped again, uh, they would go to the bullpen. So I think they were, that, that served him well. They didn't expose him too much. But, uh, you know, to, towards the end of the season, he was one of the better pitchers in, in the American League. And I think now this year, you know, he has an important role because, you know, he's gonna, he's in that fifth spot and, and everybody's earmarking that for Cobb or, or, or Snell. But uh, those guys are, are uncertain for different reasons. So I think, you know, he can fill that spot. And if one of those guys does come back, uh, you know, or Snell gets promoted, I think, you know, he can move to the bullpen and, and be effective there with his fastball and changeup, you know, working high and low. And, uh, you know, he can strengthen the bullpen because right now, if you look at, you know, where they're at with the roster, they definitely would need help in the bullpen. You mentioned the strategy of, of taking starters out early, which is something the Rays pursued more so than any other team last year, maybe more so than any other team ever. How much was that motivated by, you know, standard Rays sabermetric experimentation and how much was it motivated by the personnel on hand and some of the missing starters they had at the beginning of the year? I mean, is this something that they would do even if they had a deep rotation one to five or was it a way of trying to patch together the staff with what they had? Yeah, I think it's probably, you know, a, a little bit of both. They they are aware of, of these type of things, you know, the third time through the order penalty and and they were pretty much short staffed. So I think last year, you know, may have been a little bit extreme with what they had to do. You know, you look at the rotation this year, they're not going to mess with Archer. Uh, they're not going to mess with Smiley and, you know, Moore and, and Odorizzi and these guys. If those guys are going good, you know, and, and they're at 70, 80 pitches through six innings, I doubt we're going to see a quick hook, especially, you know, given the state of the bullpen. You know, they're, they're not going to go to, uh, you know, any Romero in, in a high-pressure situation before they have to. 
So, uh, you know, I think it, it's a strategy that worked for them last year, and they kind of needed to, and maybe it'll be a case-by-case basis if, you know, it looks like an Odorizzi doesn't have it that day. Maybe we get him through two times, and then, then we, we try to stretch as much as we can out of the bullpen. But, you know, I think ideally they would love to have five Chris Archers who you can uh, depend on hopefully going out there for seven, eight innings and flipping the lineup over as many times as need to get me out. If Kevin Cash had, you know, been wearing a, you know, a bag over his head last year and you, you just, you didn't see who he was, you couldn't have known who he was. Would you have known like at all that he wasn't Joe Madden? Was there any real difference in, in the way that the Rays played or in the way that they were managed? Uh, I don't think in terms of the, you know, the, the on-field product, I think that was pretty much that they, they had a little bit of nuances here or there, but I think for the most part, uh, you know, he did pretty much what Joe Madden would do with, with, the, with the team he had, and he stretched out 80 wins out of a team that, you know, it sometimes looked a lot worse. So, you know, the differences you see is, you know, Cash is a little bit more serious in terms of the clubhouse. Uh, you know, there, there weren't any snakes or, or mimes or, you know, whatever Joe's doing over there in Chicago. So I think that was a little bit different. Uh, you know, obviously we can't quantify just how much that part is, but, you know, I think in terms of on-field stuff, they were pretty similar, and, and the differences you really start to see is when, you know, in the clubhouse and how they handle that stuff. You devoted what must have been one of the longest player comments in the book, almost 400 words, to Evan Longoria, and at some point last season, I just sort of looked up and realized, well, I guess Evan Longoria is just not a great hitter anymore. I guess he's just not going to be a great hitter anymore, and I was so used to Longoria being on the short list for the best players in baseball and obviously still a very good player, but just hasn't had the power now for two full seasons. What do you attribute that to? And is there any hope of, of it coming back? Uh, you know, he, he's, he's worked really hard to shed that label that, that Eric Chavez label that he was given a couple of years ago. Of, you know, this guy is, he can't be counted on. He's maybe a little fragile. He's played in, if he hasn't played in every game, he's played in almost every game the last couple of seasons. And, and that means, uh, you know, he's worked through some injuries. There's, there's some risk things that bother him. And obviously, you're not going to go through any major league season without something bothering you. So I think he, I think that's part of it. And he, he's not going to complain. And the team didn't say, you know, this was nagging him. But I, I think that's there. You know, I think maybe part of it is trying to be the leader. I mean, he, you know, he came up and he had guys like Carlos Pena and, you know, these Johnny Damon, so, you know, some of these stronger guys in the clubhouse. And now that, that's his team and between him and Chris Archer. Uh, you know, Archer has the pitchers and, and he has the position players. So I think maybe Cressing trying to do too much that the offense was, you know, one of the worst in baseball. And, you know, he's in the middle of that lineup and you know, he takes pride in, in being that leader. So I think, you know, part of it and then part of it is age. You know, he now now he's on the other side of 30 and, uh, you know, he's probably not going to, you know, have that breakout season. But I think this is a guy who can still hit, you know, 280 and get up to 25 home runs and, and still be a pretty productive guy. And, and he also... It's still pretty good at defense. So you're looking at, you know, four wins, maybe five wins, and still on one of the better contracts in baseball. So do I think he's going to be that superstar that everybody projected? Probably not. But I think, you know, if we we reset our expectations, which, uh, you know, a lot of times we fail to do with a lot of players, that, you know, he's still a pretty good player. Mikey Matuk. Matuk? Matuk? Matuk. Hit 295, 351, 619 in a quarter season. He is not a guy who had much buzz. He was a 25-year-old making his debut uh, and seen as uh, somewhat on the downslope of his prospect trajectory. Is he remotely for real? You know, I think I think he's a good player. I don't know about the uh, the power that, that he displayed in such a short amount of time, but 
you know, I think I think he's a starter on, on on a lot of teams. You know, he can he's a decent defender, can play all three, probably best in a corner. But he, you know, he, if you need him to play center, he's good. He has a good idea of the, the strike zone. So I think this is a guy who would probably play every day for for some teams. Uh, you know, maybe a fourth outfielder on a, on a pretty loaded team. But the way the Rays roster is constructed, they're so heavy, you know, in the outfield and at positions like first base and DH that there, there's a pretty good chance, if not certain chance, that he's going to start in the minors along with the guy Richie Schaefer, who is a similar similar type of prospect who, you know, first-round pick, college guy, a little bit older, uh, didn't do much in his first few years. But, you know, you look at what he did across three levels yet, last year, topping 30 home runs. He's another guy who, you know, on a lot of teams would just be given a job and, and just let him sink or swim out there and give him the, you know, 500, 600 plate appearances to see what we got. But with this current, the way the roster is, he's probably going to also start in Durham. The Rays are smart. I think we all think the Rays are smart, very smart, one of the smartest, maybe the smartest. If there was a move, though, that they've made recently where – there were, I think, a lot of people first guessing it, particularly people who don't necessarily think that the Rays are as smart as as I might have just implied. It's the Steven Souza trade. Steven Souza was a guy who projections liked a lot. And you imagine the Rays make a lot of decisions with projection systems that look a lot like ours do. Um, and so they, you know, got this guy who wasn't very heralded, who didn't have, you know, this kind of classic hype around him, but had, you know, crushed in AAA. And they gave up a very good player, a very good young player to get him. And they passed over a very good They could have presumably, based on the parties involved in that trade, they could have had Trey Turner right now and Joe Ross instead of Steven, Steven Souza. And so this was a move that, it, you know, you I probably I don't know. I probably defended it. In fact, I think I did defend it. I think I was on MLB TV uh, or MLB Network talking about Pakoda and making the case that Steven, Steven Souza is actually very good. Uh, and in retrospect, it doesn't appear that he is. Like, this turns out to be a, a trade that looks right now, for now, that it was kind of a very bad trade. And because it was first guessed by a lot of people, do you think it reveals a sort of a blind spot or a hole in the way that the Rays do things? I mean, is this something that they can really be held accountable for? Well, it's not just the Sousa trade. Obviously, uh, you know, that that's that's one of their most recent, uh, you know, big deals. Uh, but you go back to the David Price trade and, you know, they got Willie Adamas, Drew Smiley and, and Nick Franklin in that deal. And, you know, they gave up a year and a half of David Price. You know, is, is that enough? I mean, even if you want, you wanted Adamas and you wanted Smiley and, you know, you, you really love Nick Franklin, uh, you know, there, there's a way of getting those guys with perhaps not giving up your best chip at that time and, and, and David Price. And you can argue that the, the Tigers got more for him at, at last year's deadline for, for half a season so you know there, there's a couple trades if you go back now and you look and it's it's almost like they're willing to overpay just to get the guys that they like you know a lot and this is all speculation you know i have no idea but uh it looks like you know maybe they could have got these guys for a little bit cheaper i mean did, do you really need to uh if you break the deal down in two deals is steven souza was he really you know worth Trey turner and joe ross or could you have you know got him in a secondary deal for for a lot less. So, uh, I mean, I think it's a fair criticism, especially when you look at not just the Super deal, but you go back to Price and, and some of these other deals. We'll, we'll see what happens with the, you know, the Nate Carnes deal of, uh, you know, this past winter where they got Brad Miller. And, uh, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a fair thing to look at. You know, they're, they're not as Teflon as they once were when, uh, you know, every, every trade that Andrew Friedman made and he's in LA now, but, uh, you know, every deal that they made looked like a runaway steal. What about Logan Forsyth? Because he has really kind of had the only standout offensive season that any Ray has had in the last two years. 
I think maybe the only one, only guy who qualified for the batting title and was even 15 or 20% better than league average. Is that a sustainable thing or was that a fluky peak year? No, I think, I think Forsyth is a, is a good solid player and, and they, uh, you know, they extended him, uh, you know, at least for the next few seasons this off season. So it uh, looks like he's going to be the, the everyday second baseman and he's versatile enough where he can go play third base and, uh, you know, shortstop in a pinch and maybe the outfield. So he, he's a raised type of player guy under the radar. And, you know, he's a guy who they did pick up in a trade and, and that, uh, that looks like a good deal. And that maybe, you know, when that trade was made, they gave up Jesse Hahn and, and Alex Torres. That looked like, uh, hmm, I, don't, I don't know what they're doing here, but it turns out that Forsyth has been uh, very good. And uh, I, I think there's nothing flashy about his game in a, in a good way. I think he does everything pretty well there's, there's not you know he's not the most powerful guy he doesn't you know doesn't have the most speed uh you know he's not going to uh, you know, approach 400 on base percentage but uh he's a, he's a guy you could probably slot first or second in the lineup and and he'll do pretty well for himself and the race have a few of those multi-position guys it's it's not just Forsyth it's also Steve Pierce and Brad Miller who's maybe going to be that kind of guy by necessity almost more so than by design so how much movement do you expect there to be from day to day in the in the lineup and in the field? Uh, I think it might be a little bit less than uh, as far as, as guys moving around. I think there's going to be a lot of name shuffling uh, in and out. Uh, obviously, Longoria and, and Kiermaier are two guys probably going to play every day in their positions. But you know, I think there's the way the roster is right now, obviously, it's, it's overcrowded. And to fit 25 guys, they're going to have to make some decisions here. But, you know, I think... Pierce is probably going to be, you know, first base, DH, corner outfield type. Uh, I think, you know, the way it looks right now, Miller will probably be the shortstop pretty much every day, uh, unless he can't make the throws to first base, which he's been struggling with uh, this spring. And, you know, Forsyth is going to be there at second base. So, and then right field, Souza and, and maybe uh, Corey Dickerson, who, who they got in trade. So I, I don't know if individuals are going to move around as much as they did in years past, as much as it's going to be. Uh, you know, a mix of guys at, at several different positions. And it seems like DH and catcher have been a couple places where the Rays have sort of struggled to find the perfect fit over the last few years. They added John Jaso, but Jaso couldn't catch anymore by the time they got him. And then he got hurt and wasn't as regular a presence as they would have liked him to be. And so they've kind of been piecing together catcher with guys who are good at something and absolutely horrendous at something else or some things else. And they seem to be going down that path again with Hank Conger and Rene Rivera. And then DH has kind of been past their prime veteran types who maybe had good hitting seasons once, but aren't locks to to have that again. And it seems like Logan Morrison kind of falls into that category. So is this just sort of more of the same at those positions? Yeah, I think pretty much. Obviously, uh, you know, DH is is the offensive position and the Rays are not going to go out there and spend much money in free agency on a guy who's just going to hit, you know, last year they kind of try to rotate guys and then, you know, injuries and, and things like that change that strategy. So I, th- I think they'll, they'll try that a little bit. I think they have Morrison, they have Pierce, they have Dickerson, who's, you know, not the strongest fielder and they got guys who can cover, cover some ground in the outfield. So I think, uh, you know, maybe that's a position where maybe they look at him, uh, even though he's a younger guy maybe seeing a lot of time at the age and, and, and catcher, you know, I, I'm not against carrying, you know, two guys who complement each other. You're going to carry two catchers anyway. So unless you have a top guy, it, it's kind of wise to have two guys that, you know, kind of play off each other's strengths. And 
Uh, so it'll be interesting to see who they pick out of that mix because you would think Conger from the left side and, and somebody like a Sally from the right side would give you the best chance at offensive production. But then, uh, you know, Conger is not much of a, you know, a thrower out there. And so you got a guy like Rivera who's, you know, a great defensive reputation, but I'm sorry, Ben, he was a Molina-like with the bat, and, and he was even a little bit worse. Yeah. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what they go there, because then Conger has an option, but like I said, he's the left-handed bat, so you go with the two righties and give Casale some playing time. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do there, but uh, you know, as far as the DH, I think it'll just be trying to find that fit and, and they even, you know, they're going to want to get Longoria off his feet maybe some days and but keep his bat in the lineup. So uh, I think it'll be that mix again. So the Rays have kept this whole thing going over the years by making a lot of trades, getting returns in those trades. And a lot of times they trade a guy right when you expect him to. And a lot of times they trade him when you're least expecting it, when you're shocked that a trade was made. And of course, uh, if it's going to be shocking, then it can't be predicted. But I am going to nonetheless ask, do you think there is anybody on this team that is going to surprise us by being traded, you know, sometime in the next 12 months? Um, I mean, maybe maybe a guy like Alex Cobb or Matt Moore, and maybe that, that's not surprising. But, you know, those are maybe the bigger names. I can't see them trading, uh, you know, Archer or, or even Longoria at this point. So, so maybe one of those two guys who, you know, more has some, some years left on his deal. So it wouldn't be a situation like Price or, or Shields where they were you know, necessarily coming up on free agency soon and they had to do it. But, uh, I think if more bounces back and, and has a really good season because he has some years left on his, his deal and some, some options, you know, maybe he's a guy you can move and get some pretty good value back because you have Blake Snell coming up or, or even Alex Cobb returning full strength in 2017 so so maybe more or even like i said Cobb himself who you know it would be the atypical trade ship because he's he's not going to pitch much this season he didn't pitch at all last year but we heard his name a couple times this offseason with, with the cubs and a guy like joe madden who knows what he can get out of Alex Cobb. maybe you know maybe that's something a team like chicago would do and, and kind of get that get him in the system and, and get him ready for 2017 so and we'll see what happens at the deadline and, and, and things of that nature. But I would say one of those two guys would probably be the most surprising, even if they aren't the most surprising. All right. So give us your win total prediction for the 2016 race. Well, they won 80 last year. You, you can't predict injuries, but, but the way, you know, the, the roster looks now, you would think some improvement. So I, I put them in 85, uh, you know, kind of halfway between where they were last year and, and about halfway where the projections had them initially. And what's the probability of Ryan Webb recording his first career save? Oh, it's it's going up almost every day. I mean, <laughs> with Brad Boxberger, you know, out for the first you know, month in the, or maybe two months, that back end of the bullpen looks up for grabs, and we, maybe we can finally get you know Webb, who's coming home. Maybe that's all he needed was to, was to come home to get the save. <laughs> Are you talking fifty fifty? Are you going higher? Not that high. What's his ground ball percentage? Whatever that is, that's that's what I'll go with. <laughs> got to be over 50 right <laughs> yep so we'll go we'll go slightly over 50 <laughs> okay ryan webb's ground ball rate in 2015 wow that was 59.2 last year that's pretty pretty lofty all right so you can find tommy writing at espn insider you can follow him on twitter at t rancel r-a-n-c-e-l thank you tommy all right thanks guys all right so stay tuned after the break to hear George talk to Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. It's funny how things go around, but go around they do. Mm. This place is empty. 
Hey everybody, before we begin, just a quick note, due to the proximity of the Rays trip for an exhibition game in Cuba earlier this week and the release date for this podcast, I recorded my conversation with Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times last Friday, approximately 10 minutes after we finished our conversation that morning, he walked into the Rays clubhouse and proceeded to break the Brad Boxberger news. So, in case you're wondering at the end of the interview why we didn't address it, or the Cuba trip for that matter, that's why. And now, here's my conversation with Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. Back to Effectively Wild. I'm George Bissell of Baseball Prospectus. Joining me now is Mark Topkin. He covers the Tampa Bay Rays for the Tampa Bay Times. You can follow him on Twitter at TBTimes underscore Rays. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you on the show. No problem. Happy to be here. Defining characteristic of the Rays over the past decade that's continued in the last year or so, despite the departures of Andrew Friedman and Joe Madden, has been their innovative strategies uh, and approach to the game. And, and one of the ways we saw that last year was their new approach to the back end of the rotation in which they allowed their back end starters to face only 18 batters to avoid the third time through the order penalty. I want to get your thoughts on how effective you thought that strategy was for the Rays, and if we're going to see maybe more teams start to go that route with their rotation moving forward. Well, you know, I think a couple points that, that, you know, to make it the start is that the Rays did it, you know, as much out of necessity as innovation. I mean, part of that was because of the injuries they had at the front end of their rotation, losing Alex Cobb, losing Drew Smiley specifically. Alex Colome wasn't fully healthy at the start of the spring. He had come in with pneumonia. So, they were kind of forced into using, you know, younger, less experienced, second tier, however you want to phrase it, starters. Mm-hmm. And thus, I think, spawned the innovation of limiting them to two times through the order. Nathan Carnes, for example, was a guy who was probably sixth or seventh on the depth chart going in the spring. He started game two. So that, that forced them to adapt. Uh, I do think there were times when it definitely worked. I think, you know, it took a little bit of selling amongst the, you know, for the race to sell it to the players and the pitchers specifically to realize you know, you weren't being penalized. This can actually be working to your advantage. This can actually, you know, have your stats look better. This can actually help the team win. And some guys took it better than others. But there was a certain degree of innovation, as you say. I mean, a key was having a bullpen that could cover that many innings and, and be able to handle whatever, you know, workload was presented to them because the starters came out early. I, I do think you'll see some other teams do it. And, and you know, I think there have been a number of things over the years, as you alluded to, going back to the Andrew Friedman and Joe Madden period where the Rays, you know, kind of came up with things. And now we've seen a lot of teams do it. Obviously, the advent of the super utility player is the one that stands out the most, the defensive shifting also. Yeah, it's important to note they didn't do this with a guy like Chris Archer. I think it's it's useful for those back end guys um, right. where you can get a fresher arm in there. Do you think that it's going to maybe impact the Rays in terms of it's going to be hard to keep shuffling as many bullpen arms between AAA and the majors as they did a year ago because we're starting to see more teams adopt that strategy. Do you think it's going to be harder to sustain that end of uh, the approach there? 
Or is that not an issue for them at all? They feel like they have enough depth where they're not going to be uh, worried about losing guys constantly on waivers or anything like that. Yeah, I think part of, of you're right. You have to play defense a little bit sometimes and things like that. A part of it is the way they're going to set up their roster and, and you know, they're at the final stages of spring training making sure that at least one spot in their bullpen is an optionable player. I mean, they preferred it to be two. It may end up being two, but at least one is going to be an optionable player so they can constantly – uh, have that shuffling and, and have that ability to run guys up and down. And we saw them do it, you know, a number of times. I mean, Andrew Blotty was a guy that fell into that role last year. I think you could see that with Steve Geltz this year, even though he spent the whole year with them last year, Danny Farquhar. So that's one thing that they're doing is they're making sure they're set up properly to do that. The other thing is, and, and you know, it's not quite as innovative as the, the two time through the order thing with the starters, but, you know, part of this year's plan, the effort to do something new, is they've talked openly about making sure they have a number of bullpen guys they're going to use for four or five innings at a time. So you can almost see where they have shifts of relievers, where they have a couple guys they can use, you know, let's say on a Monday for four or five, six outs each, and then turn around and have a couple guys they can use on Tuesday for four or five outs, then come back to the other group on Monday. So I think you're going to see them have a couple of relievers uh, that can be extended basically almost every night to be available for when they do want to go shorter with the starter. I can't wait a decade from now when we're talking about the Matt Andres revolution. That's going to be a a fun (laughs) book. (laughs) One strategic shift we've seen on the offensive side of the the game for the Rays has been their approach to uh, pitches per plate appearance for a six-year stretch from 2008 to 2013. They ranked in the top 10 in pitches seen per plate appearance. The last two years, they've actually fallen below the league average in that statistic. And one of the things that manager Kevin Cash talked about and that you've written about extensively within the last year or so is that they're looking to adopt a more aggressive approach at the plate. What are some of the driving forces behind that shift and what type of impact do you think it's going to have for the Rays offensively? Well, it's funny. You mentioned the book about the Matt Andres revolution. Well, there could also be an accompanying piece called the Steven Souza revolution because it was his, uh, his at bats that led them to get to this uh, speech and, and this theory of going with a more aggressive approach uh, at the end of last year as well. And, and obviously they felt with some success. So I, I think some of it's obvious that they just weren't doing enough offensively and they wanted to try to figure out another way to get things done and to try to get more offense going. But I do think that you know, as they realized that wearing down starters wasn't necessarily the best idea because teams' bullpens are getting so good now, and even those guys that come in in the in the sixth and seventh innings are so good that maybe wearing down that starter with the whole goal of getting him out of the game wasn't the most sound strategy. So I, I think part of it was that, part of it was philosophy, part of it was just obvious cause and effect. And they also had a team where that wasn't necessarily working either. They were having guys take pitches and then get themselves out on lesser pitches. And I think it was almost a sense of, let's just turn these guys loose and let them swing at that first pitch they like and not be worried about, we've got to get five or six pitches per bat. Yeah, do you think part of that is driven because of the division they play in specifically? When you look at the the back three innings, if you want to stack up uh, the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings for Baltimore with Givens, O'Day, and Britain, New York, you got Batances, Miller, Chapman, and then Boston now with Smith, Uehara, and Kimbrell. Do you think that's maybe a bigger reason why that's maybe driving this a little bit in the back of their minds going, look, if we get in the late innings with these teams, I don't think we, we're going to be able to score runs. I mean, I think that's a factor, but I think, to be honest, they started this last year, and mm-hmm. you know, Kimbrell wasn't in Boston and Chapman wasn't in New York. I mean, those teams still had good bullpens, so I don't know that it was necessarily as specific to the names 
that are there now, but I think the philosophy makes sense. And that you know these teams that they're competing against do have good bullpens. They do have good back end guys, and they've enhanced them even further this year. But I, I think that's part of it. Is you know there's there's that middle ground there. There's that you know that fifth and sixth inning is is where a game can be taken because that starter is still going to stay in for the most part, and the team hasn't gone with bullpen yet, and they want to seize upon you know that maybe prey on that little window there of vulnerability. So I think all that factors in, and, and as we've learned over the years with the Rays, they don't like to go with the flow. So American League East has been known as, you know, that grinding it out, work the count, those Boston, New York, those four-and-a-half-hour games, and, you know, Great. all that. And I think the Rays are trying to go against that and try to figure out another way. The big offseason acquisition for the Rays was outfielder Corey Dickerson. They picked him up from the Rockies, and a deal that I think surprised a lot of people. Uh, what are your impressions of Dickerson as a hitter so far, getting a chance to watch him this spring? And what's the plan as far as how the Rays are going to use him in order to keep him healthy? Because he did struggle with plantar fasciitis last year, uh, it broke his ribs uh, in the outfield. What's their plan to keep him on the field? Are they going to primarily DH him, or what's going to be the strategy with uh, Dickerson? this season well I give you the first the initial impression is he hits the ball really really hard like every ball he hits the spring to, to this point it seems like he's hit hard and you know that doesn't that started with the 500 and a home run that rolled it rolled 569 feet when it landed on the roof of the building beyond right center field <laughs> they they did like a, a schwarber type photo of the ball sitting on top of their building out behind the outfield fence and that was massive. But, I mean, even his ground outs, and even his ground outs opposite side, his ground outs to shortstop were hit hard. I mean, it's just remarkable how hard he hits the ball. So that's my initial impression. As far as usage, you, you hinted at it exactly. Because of the plantar fasciitis issue and, and because the way their lineup is structured, and their lineup right now is, is overstacked. They still have to make a move, and, and James Loney looks like the guy to go. But yep. they're going to use Dickerson primarily as a DH. And, and I think one of the bigger questions is how much will he play against left-handers because they've got a – a pretty good opposite uh, guy, platoon guy to use in Brandon Geyer, who I think will be in the lineup against left-handed pitching. And, you know, the guy that it would seem like he'd go in there for is going to be Dickerson. So a lot of battles going on as far as playing time within the framework of who's going to start. But I think Dickerson will be primarily the DH. He gets right-handed pitching, probably hit fourth in the lineup. Uh, Longoria likes to hit third. I would think Dickerson would hit fourth. I mean, sixth would be another option, but fourth makes the most sense. And they're going to ride what they can out of it. And you know, the other thing, they obviously will make a lot of in-game moves. So almost National League style, any team that starts righty or starts lefty, they're going to go opposite with their hitters later in the game. Yeah, Dickerson's crushed righties throughout his career. Um, have you had a chance to talk to him about the transition away from Coors? Because I know that's uh, sort of a thing that's been talked about nationally, that people feel like he's going to struggle moving out of that environment. But you touched on it. He, he hits the ball really hard. He's a good hitter. What's been his response to those types of comments and narratives surrounding him? It's usually a deep breath and a sigh <laughs> and a little bit of an eye roll. He's handled it well. He's gotten that question a lot. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I've asked him. I've heard many of the writers ask him. He's yeah. done it on some radio and TV stuff. He gets that asked question just about every interview. And <laughs> quite honestly, I think, you know, he's at the point where his answer is simply – Watch and see, and I'll show you. You know, he he played. You know, he grew up in Mississippi, which obviously was at or even below sea level. Uh, you know, most of his minor leagues, obviously, you know, except for AAA with Colorado, is going to be at sea level type parks. Uh, his best season was at a sea level type park, so he feels very confident he's going to hit. But I, I can tell you, we've seen guys come through here before, and you know, they're asking. Cor Think about this, though. They're asking Corey Dickerson to transition from being primarily an outfielder to being primarily a DH. Mm -hmm. and he's coming out of course field to hitting at sea level, and he's playing in a dome, 
So this gonna, and he's playing in the American League East after playing the National League West. So he's got a whole new pitching staff and a whole new kind of style of play to learn. So there's a lot of things that this, yeah, they're asking this young guy to kind of adjust to. And if he starts slow, that's going to be a, a very you know, fair and mounting question as to was it the course field effect. Yeah, very excited to watch Dickerson this season. He's going to be a, a fun guy to, to watch every day. Uh, Chris Archer, uh, if you look at sort of the surface stats, I think he only won 12 games last year. The ERA's pretty much been in the same range. Uh, but the advanced metrics, I mean, they really love Chris Archer. And obviously, you can see how talented he is. Uh, what is it about Archer that's really sparked his development into the ace front of the rotation guy uh, taking over for David Price down in Tampa Bay? I think part of it is, is, and I know this doesn't play as well with uh, the, the statistical-based audience, but part of it, I think, is mental. I think part of it was just him, you know, kind of coming to grips with who he could be, the getting the confidence that he had. You know, he'd been mentored by Shields and Price. You know, they were both gone, then Cobb got hurt, and, and, you know, Chris Archer stepped up and stepped in as the ace of the staff last year, and I think he kind of grew into that role and relished it, and I think that mounting confidence led to some of his success. Now, from a tangible standpoint, obviously the slider is devastating. The velocity and the break that he gets on the slider is, is very unique. To, to add those two things, there's people who throw it harder, and there's people who get more break, but there's few people who throw it at his velocity with the break that he gets. You know, the changeup is still in progress, and he's working on it. He's worked on it a lot this spring, and you know, with the power fastball, with the ability to throw it high in the zone when he wants to, with the devastating slider. And now to get that confidence that he's going to have and that change-up to drop that in at time, you're really going to see a very complete pitcher. So I, I think it's a combination of things. And if you wanted to give him something that he needs to improve upon this year, a very interesting comment that uh, Jim Hickey made, the pitching coach made me the other day, was it's fastball command, which you hear that from a lot of young pitchers, but it's fastball command on the outside of the zone. He wants Archer to be able to get better on wasting that pitch, on getting that down-and-away fastball down-and-away enough so it's not hit in a, an advantageous count, those type of things. Sticking with the rotation, what are the team's expectations for Matt Moore? He's looked good this spring coming off uh, the injury a year ago. What are sort of their expectations, and how important would it be for him to take a step forward and really solidify the back end of that rotation? Because they really have a ton of depth. It just seems like they're looking for you know, a guy or two to step to the front here. Yeah, I think that you know, the expectations for Matt Moore, based on how he finished last year, were, were pretty high because of when he, you know, he came back, he struggled. They sent him to Durham. It was a tough call, but that month down there did wonders. He came back. He had five strong starts at the end of the year, and I think that really kind of you know, gave them the foundation to expect improvement this year. He has looked really, really good this spring, tremendous. And I think what strikes me as much as you know how he's actually pitched is the confidence he has. Just seeing Matt Moore, this is the Matt Moore. You know, when he came up the first time, he was young. He was kind of young and you know a little deer in the headlights and do what he had to do. But then he got it comfortable that 2013 season, 17 wins, All Star appearance. Uh, a little bit of some soft wins in there, but still, you saw him pitch at his top level, I think, then, and then we're seeing that again now and seeing that confidence, that bounce in his steps. So I think Matt Moore is primed for a very big year, and that would be huge for the Rays. They've got two lefties now. They've got Smiley and Moore. If they're both healthy, that creates a lot of uh, interesting matchups for them in that rotation. Yeah, that's a great point. The outlaw. Kevin Kiermeyer, what is it that makes him so spectacular defensively? Is there a thing that he's talked about specifically that he said that he focuses on and that uh, has really helped him ascend to what the advanced metrics will say is the best defensive center fielder in the league by a pretty good margin right now? Well, and, and, and again, going against what the numbers say, is this is a kid who has just felt like he's never been given a chance, and you look where he was drafted. You look, look where he played in high school in Indiana. Look where he played in small college. Look where he was drafted. 
Mm-hmm. Look how long it took him to get to the big leagues. But then this is a kid who is just driven to prove he is the best defensive outfielder in baseball. He talks openly about it, and most guys, when they say that, you look at them like, you know, how cocky are you? And it <laughs> doesn't come across that way. He is purely driven. Obviously, from a tangible standpoint, from a scouting standpoint, the speed is is tremendous. The first step is tremendous. The routes are good enough that, you know, with this combination of the speed, even if the routes aren't perfect, he closes so fast. I mean, there's a number of times where balls are hit, and you initial thought, even after watching Kevin Kiermeyer, your initial thought when you see the ball hit is, no, that one, no way. And then he closes so quickly on it. And you know, talking to Joe Girardi last year at the end of the year, he actually said that when they, the Yankees are playing the Rays, they have like a little game in batting practice when they hit a ball. Like, oh, Kiermeyer would get that one. No, nope, <laughs> Kiermeyer wouldn't get that one. And, you know, that just kind of gives you a great sense of, of the reputation he has. And one of the first days down here this year, I think it was even before full squad workout started, just a bunch of position players were hitting, and Logan Morrison was in the cage and hit a ball out there. And he, I, I'll leave out the colorful adjectives, but he basically said, "Was you know, okay, Kiermaier, let's see if you can get that one. And then sure <laughs> enough, he did. So it's, it's definitely become a trademark. Yeah, it's really hard to appreciate just how good he is, unless you're watching him every day and you see the difference in terms of how many balls he gets to that most guys can't. Uh, I mean, it's just fantastic. I want to ask you about a guy who's uh, a prospect, but I'm not sure if you had a chance to see him yet, but Brent Honeywell, he throws the screwball. Uh, he's developed quite a reputation uh, among the prospect community, a real polarizing sort of pitcher. Have you had a chance to, to see him at all this spring? Uh, I haven't seen him this spring. I did see him throw uh, last spring. I have talked to him this spring and, and, very confident young man, to be a very yeah. uh, accurate way to put it. But you're right, there is some polarization in terms of even within the organization of you know how much he relies on the screwball, how much you know he still needs to learn versus how much he thinks he knows. And you know, I, I think Mitch Lukovic, the farm director, said something. They had a January camp, and he said then that you know Brent Honeywell's got the physical ability; he needs to learn the rest of the game. And and when he does, that should that should really click. And and he's a guy that wants it really bad. I give you another example was. He had a short work day the other day for their minor league camp. Uh, the day they started games, his team, he wasn't with the traveling team that was playing that day. Mm. And Jake Odorizzi was throwing in a minor league game, big leaguer, Jake Odorizzi. And Fred Honeywell was there in his three clothes. He just, instead of going home or going out to lunch or whatever else those guys can do, when they get a short day, he was sitting there in 85-degree sun watching Jake Odorizzi pitch his five innings. And I've seen him out other days before the minor league camp started where he was just here to watch the pitchers to talk to Chris Archer and that kind of thing. I'm excited to see how uh, he progresses with the Rays. Um, Mark, I want to get you out of here on this last question. What's the most compelling player or storyline that you're looking forward to covering with the Rays this year? Interesting question. Um, I mean, it's hard to not say that Chris Archer is the most compelling storyline just because he's such a curious and intelligent and a fascinating young man he's such a great conversationalist i mean just to talk to him you know just in preparation for the race trip to cuba i mean a lot of the guys are you know they just want to know where the hotel is in the ballpark and maybe go out and get a meal and chris archer wants to know what neighborhoods can he go visit and, and you know really immerse himself in the culture so i would it's hard for me not to say chris archer but you know certainly you, you look at some of the talent they have and it's been very curious to see how it all fits together too and you know, what they do in getting the final roster. Is Evan Longoria going to have that Evan Longoria year ever again is always a, a good question to go into the season with, too. So I, I think those probably would strike me. And, you know, you mentioned Kevin Kiermaier. What's next? What can he do next? Yeah, looking at the AL East in general, I mean, it's a it's a fascinating division this year. I, I'm, I'm really excited to see how it's all going to play out because there are three or four teams that you could envision winning that division easily. Mark, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll look forward to having you on again.
Sounds good. Anytime. So that's going to do it for our conversation with Mark Topkin. He covers the Braves for the Tampa Bay Times. You can check out his work there. You can also follow him on Twitter at TBTimes underscore Rays. So now let's send it back over to Ben Lindbergh to wrap things up. All right. That's it for the Rays preview. Thank you to Tommy and Mark for coming on. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Today's Patreon supporters to thank are Scott Gilbert, happy belated birthday to Scott as well, Matthew Court, Sky Kaufman, Ben Chan, Tim Charks, and Joe Bilheimer. Thanks to all of you. You can also buy our book. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and it comes out on May 3rd. It's the story of how Sam and I ran an independent league baseball team, the Sonoma Stompers, last summer in perhaps a raise-like fashion. You can pre-order the book now at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Baseball Reference Play Index by using the coupon code BP. You can contact us by emailing us at podcast@baseballperspectus.com at or messaging us through Patreon. You're listening to a Tampa Bay Rays referencing song by Grabass Charlestons, now known as the Careeners, a band from Gainesville, Florida. Their drummer, Ryan Kinney, is an Effectively Wild listener, and his brother, Patrick Kinney, is also an Effectively Wild listener and sent us this song. As a reminder, if you are a listener and you're in a band, send us your music and we'll try to find a place to play it. That's it for this week. We have done 26 previews, which means we will finish at the end of next week. Have a wonderful weekend. We will be back on Monday with the preview for the New York Mets. Let's go!